the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Air Commodore retired John Oddy, AMCSC. During over 35 years' service with the Army Reserve and the Royal Australian Air Force, John accrued substantial experience flying helicopters, heavy transport and training jets. He was a qualified flying instructor and commanded a range of units and operations in war, border protection, peacekeeping, humanitarian disaster relief and for the protection of Australians in dire circumstances. John has served on the Defence Airworthiness Board and in 2013 published a book on military service, family and society entitled Flight Command through Allen and Unwin. Throughout a range of command roles, John was responsible for leading or providing critical support to a wide range of security, peacekeeping, combat and humanitarian assistance missions across Asia, the Pacific and also the Middle East. Taking up duty as a Director General Aerospace Development 2006 through 2008, John was responsible for over 100 projects, including replacement transport aircraft, helicopters and training systems. He also held leadership of the Development of Defence Forces Level Electronic Warfare Programme. Commanding Airlift Group 2008 through 2010, John drove substantial performance reforms. John subsequently deployed as Deputy Commander Joint Task Force 633 from early 2011 with responsibilities for operations and sustainment for Australian forces across the Middle East. Since retiring from military service, he moved to live in a very rural environment and has engaged in manufacturing and energy systems development. He has also rejoined the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, where he recently qualified as a structural firefighter for offensive fire attack and rescue and became Deputy Captain of the Robertson Brigade. Air Commodore retired John Oddy, AMCSC. It is great to have your company. John, how are you? Good, thank you, Gareth. I've Lovely got... sunny day for a change. Yeah, thank God for the weather. Listen, how did your military career start? What, what was the motivation? I was on a farm. I tried to be an engineer, electronics engineer, and I was an amateur radio operator. I was on a farm. And I could see that there was more beyond the edge of the barbed wire fence of the paddock. So um, I joined the local Army Reserve. I had a good time there and uh, went to Puckapunyal where my brother went through Puckapunyal as a national serviceman and I never would have imagined years later that I'd go to the same program that I watched him march out on and go and march out there myself as an army reservist. Living on the farm, you kind of grow up there and watch aeroplanes fly over the top and cars go this way, cars go that way and thinking, gee, they're all doing important things, otherwise they wouldn't be doing that. Maybe there's more to life. On a particular weekend, we were supposed to go up to Mildura and um, with the Army Reserve, and we were going to work with helicopters. Anyway, I was up the back seat of the bus, as you know, all the clowns do. And um, <laughs> there were th- three of us up the back seat of the bus, and the, the warrant officer came on board and said, Right, are you lot, any of you want to go for a ride in a helicopter tomorrow and fly to Mildura? So I could see no hands going up, so I belted my mates on either side in the ribs and said, We're going to do this. So we put our hands up, and he said, Right, you guys take your rifles, go home. And take your rifles and go, go home. home yeah. <laughs> and um, be back here at six o'clock in the morning to go up to Mildura with the commanding officer. His name was Ted Lyons. He's a lovely guy. Died a couple of years ago, but lovely fellow. Anyway, we got up there and halfway up to Mildura, we stopped to get some fuel. And in those days, I was a smoker and the pilot was a smoker. And I went across and said to him, so, um, sir, uh, do you mind answering a couple of questions? And he said, sure. And I said, who taught you to fly? And he said, oh, the Air Force. And so oh, that's pretty cool. Did you have to pay for those lessons? Or no, 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 the Air Force paid for those. Uh-huh. And uh, did you um, get paid while you were learning to fly? Yep, yep, got, got paid while I was learning to fly. And, and what, and they pay you to do this awesome job now, do they? Yep, yeah, they pay me to do this awesome job as a pilot. So when you travel, who pays for your accommodation? Do you pay for that? No, no, the Air Force pays. Where'd you sleep last night in a tender in the barracks? No, in a motel, mate. And of course, at this stage of my life, I'd never, ever slept in a motel. Wow, you stayed in a motel and who paid for your dinner last night? And so the Air Force, what'd you eat? He said, steak. Really? You had steak and someone else paid for it. 
do you like a job? He said, yes, I do. <laughs> I said, so what's the catch? He said, oh, you got to pass pilot's course. Is that hard? And he said, no, it can be for some. and then i didn't turn anything around with that there was a couple of family crises and then i was out in the paddock again one day and f-111 nearly took the exhaust stack off my tractor i thought oh he's having fun and i'm not i think i might need to make a decision so i rang up then i then fortuitously i saw an ad in the paper that said the air force wants pilots and navigators and air electronics officers and i knew a bit about electronics and i thought oh, i could probably do that don't need to be a pilot got down to um melbourne and went did that stain line test where you pushed the white dot around on the screen or whatever and fellow down there said what are you applied for and i said air electronics officer. he said you know you're qualified to be a pilot don't you me be a pilot really i said well what do we do about that and he said we can change your application cross that box out and tick that one and um, now I got into the interview, you know, you always go through an interview and they said to me, what makes you think you can be a pilot? And he said, well, that fellow over there said it could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, blame the other. He said it. He said it. Yeah. Then they kind of said to me, what makes you think you could pass pilot's course? No reason at all. The only thing I've ever done in my life in the military is took my section through a battle efficiency course at Canunga and we did it right there. And that's it. Nothing more than that. That was two weeks. Uh, this is many months, so no idea beyond that. It's up to you to judge whether I can do that or not. I can't make that judgment. And uh, so they did. And they said, you know nothing about aviation, do you? Well, that'd be right. That's what I'm here to apply. I'm not here to tell you how good I am. I'm here to learn. And they said, have you ever been to an air show? I said, I don't even know what that is. Well, it's a place where they fly on weekends. And I said, well, there's your problem. You see, I work on weekends. I work every day of the week, so I don't go to things like that, holiday camp got shit to do right, look just just go back a few steps why did you in the first instance join the army reserves i mean if you saw these planes and various things flying over why did you choose army first off i was in ballarat you know they were there it was accessible uh second thing was my brother had been in the army my dad was a ninth visionary cavalryman my aunt was an army nurse um and i had no no knowledge at that stage that my cousin had been an Air Force wireless air gunner with 211s, got an RAF. He was Australian, and he died in Palembang right. in 13th of February 1942. And I had no idea that we as, an F, as a family had an Air Force heritage. All I ever remember growing up was there was this Air Force forage cap in the family home that we used to put on or whatever and look at and go, well, I wonder what that story is. But our, the generation before me had largely didn't talk about his loss. So when you decided to actually then make the application for the Air Force, how did the Army reservists take that? I mean, were they happy with that? Kind of yes and no. They were excited for me, but I'd also been selected to become an officer in the Army Reserve. I'd been pushed to undertake that training, and I thought, well, that doesn't seem right, but I'll give it a go if that's what you want me to do. And um, so I got selected for that. And uh, eventually, after I joined the Air Force, I thought I'd resign from the Army Reserve. <laughs> but you hadn't. <laughs> but I got this message from the people running that course saying, where are you? Why haven't you turned up? <laughs> <laughs> Guess what? I'm in the Air Force. <laughs> I'm busy down at Point Cook Lunar Fly, mate. Sorry about that. Have a yeah. good day. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's 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 stay then with the Air Force. Uh, was your introduction at 108 Pilots Course, was that the beginning? Yeah, yeah that was the beginning. And, and I do remember... Um, it was one of those funny days. It was uh, we down there. We used to put on the blue, heavy blue overalls, and the boots half heavy. Uh, not flying boots when you first got there, and it was um, it was pretty cold and crisp time there because you know the, the most wonderful thing was we, when we before we started flying. Actually, it was quite funny because there was all these airplanes flying around, and even though you were there on pilot's course, I found that it was a, still a bit of an arm's length. This belief that I'd actually be there to learn to fly. Because you know, it was very army-like when you first joined. It was to stand in rows in blue uniforms and march around in drills and do all this study about aeroplane engines, which is all very theoretical. And I learned about cladosporium resonae, the fungus that gets in your fuel, and half Geelong mean squared, which is how you calculate the distance on a... On a oh, right. On a, well, you just uh, lost me, but continue. <laughs> how you calculate some distance between two points of longitude or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, so you learned all this stuff. But then one day we got issued with flying suits. And it started to get a bit real. And uh, we got the flying suits issued and they were the pretty old-looking things, but not the sort of beautiful things we have these days. And, and then we had to march off down to the uh, flight line. And, and uh, it was kind of a bit strange because we were marching down and there was about 40, 44 of us started the course. And it was pretty brutal, i got to say, because only 22, 22 of us left Point Cook uh, to go to Pierce. 
and um, so we were marching down, and they, the techos would be running up the engines on the CT4s, and it was cold. By the time we were flying, it was basically, um, I think it might have been March or maybe April in Point Cook, which is pretty cold and yeah. miserable and frosty. Ab- and Absolutely. And... Uh, and uh, but it was magnificent because you get that sort of really crisp cold air and these muffler-free exhausts coming out of these aircraft just crackling through the air and the sound of propellers and it was exciting and and stunning and absolutely magnificent to be part of and scary because I'd never have been flying I was kind of like what sort of a pickle have I got myself into here and um, I got down there eventually I met my instructor which kind of is a bit funny because his name was Brad Johns. And uh, I'd gone to a party when I was studying engineering at Ballarat College of Advanced Education, as it was then, now Ballarat University. And, um, and I went to this party to fill this, farewell this fellow to go off and join the Air Force, which is another thing that I thought, oh, pilots are human. Wow, that's interesting. They actually take real humans to become pilots. And um, I farewelled this fellow off, and, I, and I'd forgotten his name, but and as soon as I saw my instructor, it came back to me. It was Brad Johns that I'd seen off. <laughs> and he'd gone on to the Air Force and become a caribou pilot. And I was his very first student. He went on to become an airline pilot, I think, with Qantas. Uh, but here uh, I turn up and this clown from Ballarat turns up and there he is. He's my first instructor. And um, Did he recognise you? Oh, no. No, okay. That was, that was one of those hazy party nights that he wouldn't have known me from Barra. So... I just not only remember him through a haze from that night. So, but anyway, yeah. but it was a good good experience, and so that was that was fantastic to get down to Point Cook and undertake that training. And what the training itself? I mean, your first experience actually off the ground in a in an aeroplane. What was what what do you recall of that? I, I remember it quite specifically actually because Brad got the aircraft airborne and we went and flew around and whatever. He said, "You have a you better have a go, mate." That's right. I'm here to learn to be a pilot. I guess I better have a go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a hold of this thing and it kind of went all right. But as, a, as the training progressed, I wasn't terribly good on a number of things and had to learn a lot. And uh, and for whatever reason, I, I you know in those days, pilot training was more get through the get through the selection program. It wasn't that easy to learn to fly, I found. Um, I was not a good student. Um, turns out that I was more than an adequate pilot, but not a good student. And the, the difference being that I wasn't terribly good at passing tests and, and exams and whatever as a, as a thing. I used to get too nervous and screw it up. But along the way, they had a lot of faith in me for some strange reason, which I never really understood. And one of the key things down there is you never get to do it to any test more than twice get one shot at it, and if you don't pass the second time, you get, you know, thrown out. Right. So that's why only 22 of the 44 ended up. Oh, yeah, very much. You'd go to you'd go to work every day wondering if you're next in the row. So that was pretty much the way of it, and it was quite a brutal experience in an emotional sense, and you make friends with all these guys, and then the next minute you know they're gone. Is that not really then part of the training? I mean, that pressure... Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But, well, I hadn't appreciated that at the time, but yes, it is. And, and the one thing that I'd kind of learned in life from my old man is whatever you do, never give up yourself. Put the acid on someone else to make you give up. Don't give up yourself. Yeah. So yeah. You, you talked about being nervous with tests, but when you were in the plane with a stick in your hand, were, were you confident at that and, and was successful at yeah. that? So therefore their, their initial observation, you make a good pilot, was true. Well, it must have been true um, because they tolerated my incapacity to pass the flying tests for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and, and the very last test that I had there, I actually got three shots at it um, um, for whatever reason. I don't understand why. Um, but I bumbled through and in spite of all of that, managed to pass well enough. I think I left there of the 22. I was number 22 from pilot's course to go from there to go across to um, do a Mackie training, which is what you have to do is be above the cutoff line. You don't have to be below the cutoff line, you know. It's, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> it's tough. And pilot's course, to me, was a case of just pass it. I don't have to be good. I just have to be good enough to pass. And and I wasn't – I was trying my damnedest, but I also wasn't going to give up. And I was surprised as hell when I eventually managed to get in that car and drive across to Western Australia and learn to be a 
Maggie Pilot over there. And and as it happened, um, over there, I moved up from being the bottom of the charts to being about a third of the way from the bottom, and we lost a few more over there as well. Well, you see, the RWF, uh, from all the people I've spoken to, when you go through the selection process, it seems to me, from observation, that the RWF always get it right. The people that end up succeeding, they got it right. Yeah, and, and a lot of it is to do with the training, yes, was about being a pilot, but it was also about being a military pilot. And that means you're not there to get soft and upset about things. Your job is to get on with it, get it done and do the tough job and be tough and tolerate difficult times. So pilot training was not just about that. It was also about being a pilot. It was also about being a a tough person able to handle tough circumstances Mm. and survive and get on and do Mm. well and thrive in difficult times, not just tolerate difficult times. Where did the helicopters get introduced? How did that Because your very, very first experience was that person you were talking to and it was a helicopter ride. So forget that one, forget that one. Where did the helicopters come into the scenario in the RAAF? So what happened was at Pierce, I really, really, really enjoyed flying the Mackie and I thought, wow, I wouldn't mind going on and being a jet pilot, but, but you know what? That can kind of come later. I'd rather go and experience this helicopter thing because that was pretty exciting. So I actually applied to do Chinooks because I thought if you're going to do a helicopter, go and do a big one. But as it happened, I was selected to go to Huey's, which suited me fine. That was exciting. I got across to Fairbairn in Canberra Mm. where I then got on 44 Hilo. My propensity for not doing good at exams was continue to follow me, which it did over in Pierce as well. Uh, flying exams and that, I think I just got nervous whenever someone was staring at me saying, do this. But in between times, I did all right. That course, I managed to, again, fail a couple of the flying exams, but I managed to end up ducking the course, which kind of confused me and confused everybody. <laughs> well, well, I just got, I've got a silly question. Did you pass your driver's licence in the first go or were you nervous then too? No, back in those days, you bloody... All you did was turn up to the cops and say, oh, you're Jim Oddy's son, John. Oh, that's right, here's your licence. Oh, okay, right. (laughs) So let's get back to the Air Force then. Right now, when you reflect back, is your preference for the helicopter or the fixed wing? I can't really offer you an opinion one way or other. And the reason I do that, I I think maybe the helicopter, and maybe because I really enjoyed the helicopter, it's all very immediate. You're very close to the ground. You haven't altitude's not your friend. There's rarely enough fuel in the in the fuel tanks. Mostly, there's too much air in the fuel tanks. The trees are pretty close. Uh, the job is close. The people that you're supporting are close, so they're breathing over your shoulder, telling you where to go. So it's not as if you're at arm's length from things. And you're in the form of weather where it's um, murky, muddy, and you're forever interfacing with the ground in one way or another, uh, either to land or to take off or to avoid it or to get it used to hide behind or whatever. And the, the other thing that came along, I found, is that it meant that I was kind of in amongst what I knew. So I was in amongst the Army. I do and I did and I still do like uh, working with the Army a lot. And uh, and I found that to be quite a, um, a, a genuine experience. And it was kind of funny. At one stage there when I was flying at Five Squadron, went down to support a battalion, uh, Army Reserve Battalion down at Puckapunyal and I turned up and it was my old battalion and it was still my old mates that were there. And they said, oh, Jody, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm flying this helicopter, mate. And they said, uh, what do you think about that? And I said, pretty good. Now you can just get in the back, mate. Just, just for a, a, a microsecond jump to the future, were you sad when the Air Force lost the helicopters and they went to the Army? Uh, in some ways, but it did open doors for many of us. And it saddened me not because of the loss of the helicopters, but the implied failure of respect for all of the Air Force helicopter pilots that had done the righty by Army and been good people for the Army. Yeah, yeah. There was an implied level of disrespect for all of those people, which kind of saddened me a lot because it was a game of politics that failed to honour the true reality of the service that was delivered by the Air Force flying helicopters. That Mm. was the saddening thing for me. Mm. At the end of the day, it was a decision that was taken and it may or may not have been the right decision. Uh, The problem... I think is large that Air Force, sorry, Army has a big problem attracting the right number of pilots. Did it go through your head, because you mentioned you liked working with the Army in helicopters, did it go through your head, well, maybe I should maybe leave the RAAF, rejoin the Army and be one of their pilots? Five milliseconds. Yeah. So I kind of enjoyed being in the Air Force. I like the Air Force. I love the Air Force. I like the culture and and, uh, nature of the Air Force way of doing things. The Army I love a lot, but I don't think I could ever have actually gone on and been a comfortable 
army officer. I, I found a lot more freedom in the way Air Force does things. Army is a bulk culture, Air Force is a specialist culture. So um, it's um, less industrial in scale. Okay, so just if you could maybe, um, for someone listening right now who's in neither of those services or the Navy, uh, you talk about the culture being different to some extent. The, the officers within the Air Force, what is it about the officer mentality or training or interaction with his or her fellow uh, service people that is different from other services and other organisations you've been associated with? Where I've found for Air Force leadership roles is that it's necessarily technical, it's necessarily human, and it's necessarily strategic of mind. And I'll explain those things. The technical matter no matter what Air Force does, it operates gadgets and machines that do remarkable things well beyond the immediate reach. You can't walk along beside an aircraft and touch it. It doesn't work that way. The thing disappears across the horizon. In a human sense, later on, I found as a commander of people flying aircraft, you had to grow an immense sense of trust in your people, but you also had to build that trust on a foundation of testing and review and analysis and mm. all of that because... Often I was sending 19, 20, 21-year-olds out with $50 million device to fly around the planet. And it's, you know, you have enough trouble sending your 19-year-old son out in your own car, let alone sending him off in a $50 million device with a whole bunch of other people's lives in their hands yeah. going around the planet in uncertain times. So there's a, there's a sense of leadership at a distance, leadership in remote, leadership through confidence that doesn't involve me stepping on your toes and being in your in your your lounge all day, every day. So there's a, there's a sense of that. That range and response and the the low density of Air Force systems, there's not many Air Force aircraft compared to how many, like, tanks and Land Rovers and whatever there are in the Army. There's not many. They're very expensive. If you break them, they're hard to replace. Because there's not many, they commonly are doing things that have strategic consequence, either by design or by consequence of a bad choice they have strategic consequence. And so what you're doing is you're taking these highly technical gadgets, screwing them together with reasonably young people but exceptionally well-trained to handle uncertain adverse moments to deliver strategic benefit of substance. And so that sort of confluence of pillars leads you to have to be a slightly different thinker about the way you go about business if you're going to be an effective commander of and leader and manager of Air Force people. That is a, a brilliant explanation. Uh, I've never heard anyone put it so clearly, John. I appreciate that. What I would like to do, if you wouldn't mind, uh, talk about some of the specifics in your total Air Force career. In uh, 1982 or thereabouts, you are involved in the Sinai United Nations Peacekeeping Force. What did that involve and, and what were you doing? Interesting, it was the United Nations. It was the Australian contingent to the multinational force and observers. And the reason it was the United Nations is because Russia did vetoed the intent to go. UNF2 and UNF1 before that were supported by the United Nations, supported by Russia, but in this case they didn't. So it was a standalone thing cooked up between Jimmy Carter and um, I forgot the name of the president of uh, the various presidents from Israel and Egypt at the time. But what involved was going over there, it was, it was actually involved Israel withdrawing from the Sinai Peninsula. And on the 25th of April, a remarkable day in Australian terms, on the 25th of April 1982, the Sinai, which had been captured by the Israelis, was handed back to Egypt and became Egyptian again. So the base that we were at was called Etam under the Israelis became El Gora under the Egyptians. And uh, so what our job there was to do, we had four zones. I think they were called zones A, B, C and D. Remarkable idea. Incredibly creative. The focus there was that there was one which was in an area which was wholly Egyptian, so it was on the other side, of, on the western side of the Suez Canal. There was one which was the main one. I think that was zone D. Zone C, I think, was the centre, the main body of the Sinai Peninsula, which was where there was largely... There were different rules about what was allowed in each zone. You had Zone B, I think, which is right on the Egyptian side of the just up against the Israeli border. It was only a couple of kilometres deep. Then you had on the Israeli side of the Israeli border, you had Zone D, I think, Zone A, maybe. Might have been the other way around. It doesn't matter. And they had certain things that they were allowed to have there and certain things they weren't. Israelis, that is. And on the Egyptian side, they weren't allowed to have, like, tanks and stuff up close to the border. They'd be back a certain distance in Zone C. And only so many were allowed. So our job was to take the observers. 
So we were a multinational force, so we had Australians and uh, Norwegians and uh, Colombians, Americans, the 101st Airborne. It started off with the 82nd Airborne and we had 101st Airborne down at Sharm el-Sheikh, down on the southern tip of the Sinai, and a bunch of other countries. Fiji, Fiji had a battalion there that we were operating the northern part of the Sinai, operating the control posts and observation posts. So, And the job was for these soldiers to maintain these posts of observation and do reports. Then the observers, who were American civilians mostly, we'd take them out in our helicopters and take them to different places to do observational inspections. So we'd do two things. One is supplying rations and water and crew changeover for the various Fiji, uh, Fiji back. The Americans had their own helicopters and taking the observers to where they needed to be to do inspections and, and to meet with the various Israeli or Egyptian people. Often what that meant was we would land at an OP, an observation point, and while the observers were off doing it, we'd spend time with either the Israelis or the Egyptians, being um, having a cup of coffee with the Israelis or a cup of tea with the Egyptians and having some oranges with the Israelis because they often had oranges to eat. And, and you'd actually get to know people. And, and um, it was really um, quite a, a social, educative experience to actually meet people. And they would tell us their side of their story. And we'd hear their, each of their country's view of their side of their story and it was really quite a, a learning curve for me you know sort of thick-headed country boy from australia being no way done nothing to suddenly be in this place where i'm actually meeting people really interesting people and surprisingly people that my father and my aunt and cousin had all met in a different generation in, in sure. World War II. so to actually meet up with these people and actually get to know them to some extent was a really interesting view and how how did they view the Australian? Uh, not forget the other national nationalities there. This the Australian in particular. Both um, sides, both sides. I don't know that we really discussed that in much. I think there was there was certainly a, a sense of positivity. I vaguely remember. Although I do remember on one occasion I was up in Tel Aviv. I went up to Tel Aviv for the weekend. There was you can get leave occasionally and go up to town. Went up there and I bought myself a, a pita bread with some falafel in it, which is like a, a chickpea fried thing, and some salad in it. And I bought a, a beer from this street vendor. And he said, "You don't sound like you're from around here." And I said, "No, no, no." I proudly said. No, I'm with the Australian contingent to the multinational force and observers down in the Sinai, sort of bringing peace to the area and helping you know, Israel and Egypt disconnect from each other. And he said, well, you know what? I reckon you're worthless or something. Might have been ruder words than that, not sure. And I said, why so? Why do you say that? And he said, well, what you've done is you've secured Israel's southern border and then now see those helicopters going up the coast there, right just 100, 200 metres away, there were gunships and that going up the coast. They're going up and killing my people. I'm a Palestinian. And I come from a Palestinian refugee camp up in Lebanon. Oh. You've just assisted the Israeli army to release their capacity to go and beat the crap out of my, my family. I go, I didn't have no idea how to answer that. It was just left me stunned as to my naivety about the consequences of what we were doing there and whether it was good or whether it was bad, I've got no comment on other than it was what it was and it clearly offended this fellow, rightly so. It left me sort of in a bit of a quandary that day. That's an <laughs> a fascinating perspective. Just out of interest, what was the command structure? Who was in charge of this peacekeeping group? Uh, so it was a Nor Norwegian general in charge. I've forgotten his name, unfortunately, but uh, he was in charge of it. I think a two-star general. He had his wife there and came along to a dinner one night when we were there. And we had, in charge of our group, we had uh, Wing Commander Terry Wilson, who had previously been, a, I think, a Sabre pilot, and if, uh, a Mirage pilot, and uh, had gone on. He was commanding Officer 9 Squadron at the okay. time. Lovely, lovely, awesome fellow. He taught me so much about what it meant to be a leader in an Australian Air Force unit in a remote environment. So when you became an Air Commodore, you uh, no doubt remembered a lot of what he had done. Is that Would that be a fair assessment? I remembered that at every rank I went up to where I got a level of authority and duty and accountability. I remember Terry and uh, just remember his soft-handed way of getting somewhat adventurous young blokes to do something akin to a professional approach to life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's jump from 1982 to 1983 in your operations in PNG. What, what did that involve? Up there we were flying Chinooks. I was at 12 Squadron at that stage and um, we'd go up there because the Chinook is a really good, it was a pretty good high altitude flying helicopter. We could carry a reasonable amount of weight. Nonetheless, it got very slow on occasion. At some points, your, your velocity never exceed was not much different above your single engine safe flight velocity. So it was down around 60 knots and you couldn't fly much lower than 40 knots. So yeah, you, know, you only right. had a 20 window between your maximum speed and your 
And that was largely driven by rotor RPM. We used to be able to change the rotor RPM from 235 to 245, and we used to bring it up to a higher RPM. You got better lift out of it at that altitude. But what we were doing is go and land in different villages. Um, there were two tasks that happened when I was up there. I did, one of them I didn't get involved in, the other one I did. So the one I did get involved in was helping people pick up uh, heavy tractor-like things from one place and taking them to another place. So from one hilltop to another one, so they could build a new airfield. And, of course, the airfields were important so they could get health and medical services and that into the various villages. Mm. On this particular occasion, we uh, we flew in to land there and um, they wanted us to move a tractor. Normally they'd break the tractor down into pieces that they would just backpack across the hills. You know, and imagine carrying a tractor tire across these mountains. It's yeah. <laughs> so you turn up with a Chinook, you can save a village a year or two's worth of work with one flight with one helicopter. We were given this thing and it was a bit hot and a bit high and a bit wet, which means you don't have quite as much lift with all of those factors. And we kind of got this thing on the sling hanging under the centre hook of the... In that Chinook, we only had one hook, so we, we uh, had it hanging. But we couldn't quite get it off the ground, but we could slide it across the ground. And so we thought, ah. And there was a cliff about 50 metres in front of us, so we thought, oh, well, we'll just drag it over the cliff, throw it off, and we'll fall with it until we can get some flying type speed. <laughs> you wouldn't do it these days, but that's what we did then. And uh, anyway, we dragged it. Did it succeed? <laughs> Well, I'm here. Yeah, well, yeah, but is the helicopter. <laughs> the, uh, the load fell off the cliff and we immediately got skull dragged with it down into the deep valley, and um, which was a, a bit of a wild ride for a short while. And uh, we managed to have maximum amount of power there, so it wasn't a terribly gross experience. We just sort of settled off the, off the thing and, and uh, managed to start climbing away once we got some airspeed. And so we then were able to take it across, and by then we burned off a new fuel, enough fuel that we were able to hover to land it. John, your involvement with the Can River and Victorian Alps and the fires, was that still being part of the Air Force? Was that part of their brief? Yeah, yeah no, so that was when I was back at Fire Squad and that was on Hueys and we were down there. And when the Can River bushfires happened, I think it was the summer of the December of 1981. It might have been that because it was just before I went to the Sinai. And I was down there with Mick Stone, was my captain. I was a, a what we called a DCAT captain in those days, all helicopter pilots. You never co-pilot. You're always on your pathway to more senior captaincy. And that was a very important thing so that no one could sit back and say, I'm a co-pilot, I don't need to do anything, anything more. You're either going to be a captain or you're not going to stay. That's the way of things. Yeah. We couldn't afford people who were holiday campers. That was the way of it. So I was down there with Mick uh, Stone. We had about three or four helicopters down there. Mike Hudson had a helicopter somewhere further east, maybe. But maybe Trackless Milsom had not one somewhere else. We had about four helicopters down there flying around, basically moving firefighters into places that needed to be or taking out people that needed to be evacuated or taking food and water in. Basically what helicopters do after in disaster environments everywhere. Sure, sure. That's what we're doing there. And then subsequently in 83, I was back in uh, Mount Macedon area and down across the Altways and with forgotten, might have been Mount Bogong. So we, we went down from Richmond in a Chinook, I think in about 83. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't Can River, that was this other thing. And we went down and picked up Mel Fraser and Tammy. And uh, we had to get there in a hurry. I was hoping to fly past my folks' place, but because we were in a hurry, the captain of the aircraft said, no, 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 we've got to keep going. We went down and landed there and waited for about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I missed out on flying the one and only time I could have flown a Chinook past my mum and dad. Anyway, so we went down there and we picked up Mel Fraser and Tammy to take him for a tour around Victoria, which was great experience. Um, Tammy, unfortunately, Tammy was, believe it or not, she was nursed. This is funny about Australia. She was actually, as a baby, she was nursed by my aunt. And um, Goodness gracious. Who would have thought? And um, anyway, she got on the aircraft and, and uh, she was a bit cold, so the loadmaster had said, look, would you like something warm to wear? And she said, yes, please. And being a helicopter, we tightened it up a bit, but it was still a bit feral. And um, he went and grabbed my old army jumper I used to wear, you know, those ones with the cotton patches yeah, on yeah. the had one of those, and he went and grabbed that and gave it to her, and she said, you know, she shook all the dead sandwiches and dead rats out of it and gave it to her, and she said, oh, this is a lovely jumper, nice and warm, they give you these? Uh, he said, oh, no, no, we've got to buy this. I think the co-pilot bought this, and yes, I did, but only when I was in the Army Reserve, not in the Air Force. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, she said, oh, we have to talk to Mal about that. Anyway, nothing more was said, and we flew them around and took them to different places like Mount Macedon, and, and, which was very good for them to see and Mal was an incredibly tall fellow and we did have 
some trouble fitting him into the cockpit of the Chinook was just designed for small blokes like me. But um, but we went and took him around, and, and it was a really good chance for him to actually see the, the damage that these fires had done. And they were quite profound, and because I was a local bloke from down there, I knew most of the roads and most of the towns, so I could navigate from town to town and explain which town was what, which is not always that easy when you're not used to flying. And we went out to Cockatoo, which had been burnt out. Of, I don't know if you remember that. That was badly burnt. Then subsequently we flew, uh, after we did that job, we flew up to, I think it was to Mount Bogong or somewhere like that, and we were flying out of Moodleford, I think, yes, Moodleford. Up there, the fire brigade, the CFA, was doing a lot of driving, and the, I think the Forest Commission, it was called then, doing a lot of driving. They'd drive for an hour to get to the fire, and then they'd fight the fire, and then drive for an hour or two to come back. So they said to us, well, could we fly the people in and out? We said, sure, we can do that. So the first mission we flew on, we flew these fire people up to the top of a hill, and the fire was all around the hill. For some reason, they'd cut out a pad on top of the hill using a bush bulldozer. But the fire was working its way up the hill, and they were trying to, I don't know why they were standing on top of the hill trying to put a fire out, but they, they were. And they said, we want you to land on that pad. So we did, but it was dead dry. It had been cut out by a bulldozer. It was surrounded by flames about 30 feet, 40 feet high. Goodness gracious. With smoke coming up everywhere. And we landed this big Chinook, which is just one big windblower. And we landed this in the middle of it, and um, there was dust and flames and smoke going in every direction. But we managed to land it, and they got off, and away they went. And, and we sort of got airborne out of there and thought, well, that was a bit adventurous. Maybe we won't do that again. Yeah. <laughs> Just if we could briefly touch on a couple of other things I'd like to hear about, particularly the stowaways involved. Operation Vista in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. You were there. You tell us the story, plus the stowaways. Yeah, it's a funny old time, that one. What had happened was that there was a political crisis in Cambodia. Australian citizens were at some level of risk over there, so we had four C-130s that flew over there um, for a range of reasons. I ended up being the, effectively the task force commander for that. I was newly promoted to wing commander from being XR-37. A little bit unused to these moments, but got there. I had mostly uh, four aircraft from 36 Squadron that were special aircraft that had surface-to-air missile defence systems fitted to them. They were, they were the ones that we had, unlike today, that we only had a few of those. And, um, and they were armoured as well, and they had uh, radar warning receivers on them. And um, we had to fly into Phnom Penh, which at the time was a little bit flaky because they had a lot of surface-to-air missiles, a lot of SAM-7s and some radar-guided missiles, radars as well. And uh, we had to go in there. And a good friend of mine, Vice Marshal now, back then I think might have been a group captain, maybe a wing commander, I don't know, Greg Evans, was on the ground in there and he was coordinating the evacuation of Australians from an, from the embassy point of view. He was an ex um, ex-operations uh, flight commander at 36 Squadron on C-130Hs. He was over there organising that. I went forward with the first aircraft because I wanted to see what was going on and get a sense of what was on the ground and what I needed to do with in terms of risk management. We'd been sitting for a couple of days waiting for permission to go in there, which we did, and we eventually got in there and landed. And it was being tropical. There were storms everywhere. And we loaded up our load and then got our way back out. And we flew back to Penang and landed at Penang Airfield where we offloaded the Australians who we thought were all Australians. Turns out there was a couple of sneaky peats got on board, people who'd stowed away on board. They'd got caught by our people over in um, Penang when they were going through, who are you, and doing the normal reception program. And so we had to get them back to Phnom Penh because we couldn't take them to Australia. Malaysia couldn't accept them. They had to go back to Phnom Penh, but we were worried that if they got sent back to Phnom Penh that something bad would happen to them because they'd tried to escape. So we... um, we put a lot of effort in, Greg put a lot of effort into making sure that when they got back, they were accepted back into their country with due respect for their safety and, and survival, which we did the best we could. We had no idea what happened with them when they got back. And so that was the story of that. It was a, yeah. bit of a sad moment and a bit of a sorry thing. And, and um, the funny thing, uh, going beyond that, though, the last mission that day, the fourth aircraft that came in was had on board it. My deputy task force commander was John Somolsky. Adam Somolsky was previously an instructor of mine at Five Squadron. John Somolsky was a navigator at 36 Squadron. He was the effectively deputy commander of the task force, and he flew in with those guys. And this is a real story of heroism for that crew. Um, the crew that flew in eventually were awarded with an Air Force commendation, I think. They should have probably got more than that. They flew in that night. It got dark by this stage. The weather had come down. There was an extreme thunderstorm over the airfield. Extreme. Uh, talking about a tropical deluge. And, and the crew flew in and they, there was no airfield approach aids. So there's no runway instrument landing system. There was no 
precision approach radar. There was no radars. There was no tack in. There was no visual omni range. There was none of those things operating. All they had was the radar on the aircraft, navigators that knew their stuff, pilots that knew their stuff, and by the way, were no longer current. So they actually weren't still qualified. They were previously been qualified, but they weren't qualified at the time. And they flew in and they used the radar on the aircraft to detect where the runway surface was. And they flew in and under extreme weather, landed on that runway, not being able to see it until the wheels touched it. Gosh. Using the onboard <laughs> aircraft radar. And then they were able to use that same system to then navigate the taxiways to find their way to the tarmac and then pull up. And then they were able to then. The reason they did that was because it was the last approved flight and anybody that stayed behind was going to be subject to mortar attack by the, by the forces that be at the airfield at the time. So they managed to evacuate all of the last of our own people, our own Air Force and Army people that were there. There was Army as well. And uh, managed to evacuate them as well as the last of the evacuees. And and uh, I think Greg Evans stayed behind and went back to the airport and back to the embassy that night. So it was a, it was a big night. And those guys were absolutely heroes because they saved lives by doing that. Uh, I just so enjoy uh, chatting to people like you, uh, parts of our history that are not written down and not recorded. I mean, this is such an important verbal history of uh, the RAAF and the people who are part of it and what they've done in various situations that we we don't hear about. And what about, you were also involved in the, uh, well, not you personally, but you were there, the Civil War in Bougainville, where something like 15,000 nationals died. What was your role there? Peace talks had been set up by our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and the leader of those was um, a, a young fellow of the day by the name of Greg Moriarty, who <laughs> has a remarkable job these days as the secretary of our department. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, but in those days, Greg was on uh, effectively um, he's one of his early important roles, and the job was to get uh, a bunch of PNG Solomon Islands Bougainvillians down to peace talks in uh, New Zealand. And to get them there, we had to have about four hercs to go along and collect different people from different places, take them all to uh, Honiara, uh, aggregate them all there and get them all onto a 707. And we had two 707s just in case one broke because everything was doubled up. We only needed two hercs, we only needed one 707, but we had four hercs and two 707s. We couldn't afford to fail mission. Everything had to be doubled up. And so um, we had them all there. And because everybody had been on, from both sides of the conflict, and there'd been a certain amount of lethal action, people killing different people and whatever. And so our job was to keep people safe and secure and on the same aircraft and take them down to New Zealand. So without going into the raw detail, we had methods to keep people from killing each other. We gave them a close briefing and everybody was attentive to not being badly behaved on board the 707. But it was taking us forever to get airborne for a whole bunch of reasons, things getting slow, getting approval to get airborne, all that sort of stuff. And the 707 was fully loaded. And for every degree the temperature went up, we had to take four people off the aircraft. And the aircraft had all the people we needed on it. And I'm just sweating on this thing. And, and the 707 is a lovely old aircraft, but it just isn't covered itself with glory when it comes to excess power, excess thrusts. <laughs> So I'm on the ground there trying to get this thing organised and, and I've got the crew leaning on me saying, we've got to get airborne, we've got to get airborne. And I'm going, yeah, 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 we've got to get this too, we've got to get that. So this is all just going on and the pressure's just building on me to just get this thing airborne. And eventually we, we did, we staggered off the ground and made our way down towards New Zealand. And then there was, I can't remember what, what happened, but I think we were supposed to go to Christchurch, but we ended up, I think, going to Auckland. And the reason I think was because there was an extreme weather event at Christchurch, which meant we had to turn around and go back to Auckland, but Auckland wasn't set up to receive all of these people that we had on board that needed special handling to meet their security and safety and political needs. And so... So it was yet another one of those airborne HF conversations trying to sort stuff out because that's all we had was HF radio to talk to people. There's none of this modern talk to people on the phone. It was HF radio with yeah, all of its yeah, yeah. pluses and minuses to, to talk <laughs> it through. But we got it sorted out and then eventually we went back and picked it all up and I think Greg was happy at the end of the day. But one of the most important things I did on that before we got airborne was um, – to make sure I knew what the mission parameters were when Greg was coming up to Richmond to visit up with me and understand how we were going to go about it, was I invited him around and he had dinner at my place up in the Blue Mountains and we, we had a barbecue there and we just got to know each other with me as the military leader and him as the political leader and, you know, and made sure that I knew exactly what he needed done, so, yeah. which is a yeah. really important story. Uh, briefly, and I know that 22-hour missions are involved, what was your involvement as an Air Force person with fisheries? So we 
had to, there was a while back in the, um, I can't quite remember, I think um, maybe the late, 90, late 90s where we were, Australia had was seized by um, toothfish, uh, Atlantic, no, sorry, Antarctic toothfish or something like that, Patagonian toothfish. Yeah. And they were being stolen by bad people operating shipping um, fishery trawlers out of South Africa, I think, something like that. And they were going down and stealing all the fish. And apparently these are pretty, A, expensive fish, and B, pretty rare. They take a long time to grow to their useful economic age. And so we were tasked to support a Navy ship down there with our aircraft, and... um, and the Navy ship was down there sailing in the heaviest of seas. What was the aircraft, sorry? It was a C-130. Right, okay. C-130 yep. Yep. And so the P-3s had had some support, but they don't have the same range. And so what we had was we'd set up a couple of C-130s with capacity to fly that distance in time, and um, which meant a lot of fuel on board. We had ended up with, I think, around about, if I guess right, maybe... Uh, uh, maybe about 88,000 pounds of fuel on board, something like that. I uh, can't quite remember. So it was a lot of fuel. And to get airborne, the aircraft was 170,000 pounds or thereabouts, I think. Um, and the only airport, airport you could get off of was Perth. You couldn't get off at Pierce because you'd, you'd take out the barbed wire fence at the end of the runway. So we had to take off out of Perth. And, and we had two crews on board, a takeoff and landing crew and a, and a a mission destination crew whose job was to grab the four hours at the far end and make sure that they could land there. The problem we had for that mission was that um, to get that fuel out of the extra tanks that we had on board, there was only one valve joining those tanks, the aircraft. <coughs> so if that valve failed, you wouldn't get the fuel. So you had to get the fuel out of it before you got to a point where you were so far out you didn't have enough fuel on board to come back. So just in case that valve failed. So we had to make sure that we got the fuel out of those tanks sooner rather than later, um, and uh, which was important anyway because that was the best way to manage it, to get the weight out of the fuselage and to take the load off the wings. So then you were just carrying your wing fuel and your external tank fuel, which is a lot easier on the wings than carrying internal fuel. And then, then the other problem we had on those missions was that the missions were flown into the Southern Ocean and while we were used to flying into the Southern Ocean, normally it was with enough fuel on board doing search and rescue that we could easily come back. For these missions, they were so far south, so far south that if something went wrong, you fair chance you wouldn't come back. And the nature of the ocean there is so violent and the distance from anything is so far that if an aircraft ditched down there, there's no point in trying to live because you're not going to live, you're not going to survive long enough to be rescued. Mm. So even though we gave people what we call immersion suits, on, you know, big orange suits, and told them to wear them, all they were was a, a, a thing that was only going to keep you longer and make you suffer longer, and eventually you're going to die anyway. And so they were incredibly dangerous missions flown for a, a purpose that was perhaps not in line with the mission that we were flying, mm. the risk of the mission we were flying. But it, but being the committed people we were to do duty, we did what we were told. And, and when I say we, it wasn't me. I was the commander overwatching this and um, other people were doing it. And uh, it was um, one of those times where, you know, you're, you're torn between your duty as a commander to speak up and say what needs to be said and make sure people above you understand the risk and at the same time doing what you're told to do. Mm. Uh, and um, quite a... The classic you know, command dilemma. Well, yeah, I mean, you can not do it, go to jail, and someone else will just do it, or you do it the best you can and moderate the risk as best you can. I don't know. I don't know how you deal with these things. You deal with them and merit on the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's... Jump, if you wouldn't mind, to Iraq and Afghanistan. You were commanding 86 Transport Wing, I believe. Um, so what did you have to do there, in particular regard battle worthiness and also anti-missiles? So we had our Hercs flying in and out of um, Baghdad and, and other airfields around Iraq, and I'd seen the nature of Iraq during my time there in the Gulf War in 91 with the RAF. So I was kind of aware of the nature of Iraq, 
I was also very aware of the nature of surface-to-air missiles because I was a helicopter tactics instructor with the RAF, so and I've been preparing to fight wars against the Russians and the East Germans as it was back in the day. So I understood all of these things quite closely, and, and having also been CO36 squadron with the C-130Hs, I was very aware of the nature of the systems on air, C-130H, how good they were and how um, they needed some work in some areas. And less less than perfect, perhaps. And and I was, so we were flying these missions in and out, and we were flying at very low altitudes, very high speeds, very tight manoeuvres, and we had certain tactics that went with that to um, handle the flight of missiles against us. Missiles were being fired against us. Some of our aircraft had missiles just missed them. Um, Paul Padol, one of our navigators, had gone and joined the RAF during this time. He was flying an RAF mission out of, I think he might have taken off out of Basra. I think it was Basra he took out. It might have been Baghdad, not sure. But he, his aircraft got shot with a heavy machine gun, blew the wing off a C-130H, and they all died. Yeah. Um, and so very conscious of the mortality of our crews, the necessity for mission because we had people on the ground that needed these missions flown, you know, people like John Howard flying on the missions. And so we needed to make sure that as best we could that nobody died. Um, either because they got hit by a missile or because they hit the ground trying to avoid a missile or something like that, and they didn't get hit by a machine gun. So we were putting a lot of effort into getting things like foam into fuel tanks and and uh, improving the missile defence systems and changing our tactics. But one of the problems that we had was that we were living off tactics that were given to us by American training, and we hadn't really tested those tactics in our own thinking knowing what we knew about the way things worked, knowing what we knew about the threat and all that. And so and so you've got this confluence of assumed competence of other people's ways of doing things, insight into the way things worked, some insight into enemy action, some insight not, and needing to bring that together into a managed framework, which is probably considered where wisdom can be allowed to blossom, insights are allowed to be surfaced, um, understanding can be grown and confidence can be shared out to the crews. And so that through that, I used the battleworthiness concept as a derivative of my time with the RAF to then bring together effectively a board where we assess the balance of all things, the balance of threat, the balance of insight, the balance of technical performance, the balance of tactics, the balance of training, all of these different balances and tried to come up with an adequate way to do things to make sure that Think people, our crews didn't die, our passengers didn't die simply because we were too stupid to understand the world or failed to understand something that we should have understood. By doing that, we managed to change tactics. It wasn't always easy. A lot of people were pretty wedded to the old tactics. Uh, managed to get a lot of the gadgets that might not have been as good as they should have been improved. Managed to fit systems to the aircraft that should have been fitted before but weren't because people were saying, well, we shouldn't fit them because they're hard to manage. So we said, well, get over the hard to manage, learn to manage, like like the foam on the fuel tanks and that. So we did all of that. And I never know where it worked. At the end of the day, nobody died. Then, died. Yeah, then it worked. Yeah. It worked. Did you have the same brief, the same principles, the same guidance with the aerospace development uh, with the Super Hornet and the electronic warfare? Yeah, well, so that, that approach to life about... Um, do what's right. Don't fail to do the right thing simply through ignorance or overcommitment to a false concept was what drove me in that. I was newly appointed to be Director General Aerospace Development and um, I didn't understand the politics of Canberra, to be quite frank. Um, But what I did understand was what was right and what was wrong about systems. Um, Because I was in a different part of defence to Air Force, it was often difficulty difficulty for me to engage with Air Force leadership. I've tried hard, but often it didn't work out well because I was driven by the direct priorities granted to me by the Joint System and Capability Development Group. Um, and so, but anyway, we managed to work it through, and we ended up um, probably against the the views of many buying. Um, perhaps unintentionally buying because we sent across a proposal to either, uh, keep our, and advance our classic Hornets more longer um, 
to wait for the um, JSF to turn up or to buy some Super Hornets and the government, we put forward a balancing brief towards the government which addressed all the balance of all these matters and surprising, and one of the options was to buy Super Hornet and surprisingly the government said yes we'll have some of those please and really gave me the lesson of whatever you do in proposing things to government, never send them anything you don't expect them to do. (laughs) (laughs) So so they got the Super Hornets in but after we got that approved um, I had a, an affinity for the electronic warfare game from my time as an amateur radio operator, my time with the RAF with electronic warfare, my time with Battle Worthiness. Then also I became accountable for force level electronic warfare for defence and I wanted it to be better and we, we, we needed a lot of improvement because I won't go into things in detail. Suffice to say there need to be a lot of improvement. And one of the things that I offered up was to have the last 12 of those 24 Super Hornets fitted up, ready to be growlers, which I managed to win, I don't know, something in the order of $180 million to do that, Mm. which we did. Um, Subsequently, I went on and continued in my time, subsequently in the Middle East, when I was Deputy Commander of Joint Task Force 633 in the Middle East, that was, two, that was 2011, was it? Or, yeah. 2011. Yeah. I continued to progress a program of understanding how we were using electronics. We were using electronics in the battlefield, even against a third world enemy, we were using electronics very well. And, um, and that provided a foundation of why we needed Super Hornets. And we built up a fairly good body of evidence and material and that, and this wasn't much to do with me. It was more to do with other colleagues in Air Force headquarters to actually go out and buy, the option was put to government to buy growlers or update some of the Super Hornets to be growlers. And the assessment was it was just as cheap to buy growlers as it was to buy to update yeah. the, um, the Supers and we'd get to keep 24 Supers, which we needed as it happened. And so that's what we did. And um, we ended up with the growlers. And uh, I do remember one time over there I visited, um, I think it was Vice Admiral Nora Ticehurst, I think her name was. She was the commander of the Ronald Reagan battle group and she had the Ronald Reagan alongside in UAE and I visited with her and I saw that she had growlers on the on the ship's deck and I said to her do you know what they're doing she said well mostly we launch them and return them people don't tell us what benefit they are so I gave her a brief on how many of our soldiers were alive because of the benefit of those aircraft and she was more than a bit stunned and Mm. um and uh, from that, and that was a really big sort of influence factor. Yeah. And the big thing about that was we learnt from the C-17 program is when we got C-17s, just do with the C-17s what the Americans do so that when we got growlers, just do with the growlers what the Americans do. Do it in the American way. Do it in the U.S. Navy way. Do it with the U.S. Navy. Do it as a partner with the U.S. Navy, not as a buyer from the U.S. Navy. Yeah. And that's profoundly the only way we made the growlers work. The U.S. Navy stood in stood up, and effectively our squadron of growlers was effectively brought in as a US Navy growler squadron. Mm. John, you've had an amazing an amazing career, and it's been remiss of me. Uh, the one thing that we didn't uh, focus on was your time with the Royal Air Force, the RAF. Uh, perhaps to a, another day we can do that. But when you did retire, you still... Committed to service, you now a member or were a member or still is uh, New South Wales Rural Fire Service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started on that back when I was at Richmond. I was up and I used to live in Bowen Mountains, which is in the Grossvale Fire Brigade area. I started there and that was back in, I think, 94. There was some fires back in 94. And then I stayed in the Rural Fire Service, you know, with a, with a small break shortly after I arrived down here in the Southern Highlands. And I'm back in it again now and I've ended up, you know, I don't seek leadership at all, Gareth, but when you've got all the calls that I had, they needed me to be a brigade leader because in brigades, captains and officers of brigades can exercise the authorities to make safe things happen yeah. in terms of closing yeah. roads and that. So I, doing that. I have no intention of asking you what is a leader because it is clear from listening to you talk, I feel like a student and you're a brilliant teacher, you <laughs> you. You possess all those qualities of what a leader is, and I just want to thank you so much for sharing over an hour with us this morning and this afternoon and tonight, whenever you're going to be listening to this. You're a remarkable person. What you've done for Australia, the Royal Australian Air Force, and sadly for a very brief time, the Australian Army Reserve. So, sir, congratulations and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Gareth. Globally... 
the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.